Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, kiddos. Do you want to come stand with me? I need it quiet, Addie, so I can tell a story. Some of these kids are very noisy. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kate, and I am a mother of four small kids. My youngest is now two years old. He's been weaned for about a year, so this has been a really fun experience this time around, having a little one who has so much joy and so much energy and really wants to share these moments with you and is developing and learning so much so quickly that it's been a lot of fun being able to watch this last one. It's kind of a season that I missed in the blur of everything the last few goes around. And so Merrick is too, he seems so very independent. Especially. Although he is very independent in a lot of ways, he is also very close to his mom still. When we eat breakfast, we'll all sit around the table, for example, and if I haven't sat down yet, he'll go sit in his chair and he'll start eating his breakfast. But once I'm sat anywhere in the house, he will come and find me and climb up on top of me so that he can sit together um, for any reason, just so he can be there. And then he'll sit and snuggle in while I eat my food until I need to get up for some reason. If ever there's a conflict or an injury or something that upsets him, I can tell right away in the tone of his voice and I can hear his little footsteps looking around the house for me and he comes to me immediately just for a hug sometimes and often to tell me in his own little babbles what's gone on and he needs to hear that reassurance from me that it'll be okay or have me come advocate for him with an older sibling that no, it was his turn or whatever the situation is. He definitely seeks me out to be a problem solver still. He's not quite independent enough to do everything on his own. Yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah. And often when we're sitting and watching worship or sitting because I can't stand and sing with him for too long, he's a, getting to be a big guy now at two years old, that we'll sit down and we'll snuggle up and he'll fall asleep. And there's anywhere in the house that he could have chosen to go have a rest, but he'll come and sit on my lap and it's comfortable enough that he finds peace there and we'll just drift off to sleep. When I read the psalm, I was actually struck with a very different picture than I had first imagined when I heard the word a weaned child. I was thinking developmentally, a kid changes very much from the baby who's nursing to the baby who's crawling to the toddler who's running around to being a big kid. There's so much going on in the brain and in the body that changes. But what I pictured when I saw those words, you know, being still in the presence of the Lord and coming to Him for that relationship, it made me think of my little two-year-old who will find a rock that is really cool and he'll come and bring it to me right away and he'll explain why it's so cool and he just wants to share that moment with me because he knows that I will share his joy about it. 
And the big kids will do that to a certain extent as well, but they're far more independent and they have their own relationships now with others. But the little one very much will, will bring everything to me first. I'm still kind of his gateway to everything else in the world and he interprets his world through the way that I react to him. Wasn't that a wonderful uh, insight into the relationship between a mother and a child? And there's a reason why, why God uses the image of uh, a mother with a weaned child, um, a, a, a child that has, that has experienced the nourishment and the nursing um, from the mother, but is now into that next stage. There's a reason why God uses the image of a weaned child, because it's such an intimate picture, uh, because this act of nursing has created such a special bond, such a, a deep connection between the mother and the child. Uh, I was reading in an article by Katie Powers online uh, recently that brand new babies can smell their mothers from two feet away. Now, their eyes can only focus about eight inches, uh, but their olfactory powers, their sense of smell is so much more um, well-developed. So much stronger. And, uh, and so for this child, uh, mum means home and mum means food and mum means safety. And that weaned child, even though they may be now onto solid food, still needs that mum factor. And so I love this image in Psalm uh, 131 verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Here we see God as mother. Now we know that God is Father God. The idea of God as Father is implied and explained all the way through Scripture. God reveals himself to us primarily through the metaphor of Father. But here we see God as Mother. As Mother. Now, maybe it's just me, but I feel kind of weird talking about God as mother, like I'm a heretic or something. But this is a powerful metaphor, and it's in the Bible, and it's in Psalm 131. And today, we're talking about Psalm 131. So, it's on the table. Let's talk about it. And that's why we started this morning's message hearing from Kate. Because Kate's heart towards her weaned child is a window... Uh, for us to see God's heart towards us. Let's, so let's look at Psalm 131. What do we see? Well, first, there is a statement of who I am not. My heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. Uh, next is a statement of what I do not do. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Next, we see a what I do statement, but I have calmed and quieted myself. And finally, there's a statement of who I am. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I am content. So we have, um, so we have who I am, or sorry, who I am not. My heart is not proud. What I do not do, I do not concern uh, what I do. I have calmed and who I am, I am like a weaned child. Who I am not, what I do not do, what I do and who I am. Or we can say it as identity, action 
action and identity. And we see this kind of thinking, not only just here, but we see it in other parts of Scripture. For example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, where we read this, uh, Flee from sexual immorality, what I do not do. Uh, you are not your own, who I am not. You were bought at a price, who I am. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, what I do. What I do not do, who I am not, who I am, and what I do. So in Christ, life in Christ is a mixture of the things that we do and the things that we do not do, stemming from who we are and who we are not in Christ. So let's look at these two statements, the bookend verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 131. My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. And then I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. Now, these are the I am statements. These are the identity statements. And here we see that pride is contrasted with contentment. Pride is contrasted with contentment. Now, if I was to survey 100 people and I was to ask them, what is the opposite of pride, what would they answer? In fact, what would you answer? I bet that nearly everyone would say humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. And then if I was to ask a second question, well, what's the opposite of contentment? What, what would you answer? Well, once again, I bet that 99% of people would say that the opposite of contentment is worry or stress or anxiety. And yet, here in Psalm 131, the opposite of pride is not humility, it is contentment. And the opposite of contentment isn't worry or anxiety, it's pride. Pride and contentment are in opposite corners of the ring. Why is this? Why is contentment set up as the opposite of pride? Okay, here's what I think. Pride, uh, it's a feeling of deep satisfaction from my own achievements. That's what one dictionary says. It's a deep satisfaction from my own achievements. That's what pride is. So, so if I'm happy with my achievements, then you might say that I am content. However, as soon as I fail to meet my own expectations, whether through weakness or personal limitations or sin, uh, then my level of contentment takes a nosedive. I'm restless, I'm frantic, I'm trying to restore that sense of inner peace, and the only way to get back to that sense of inner peace is by restoring my pride. However, if I change my focus so that my focus is no longer on living in a way that I'm proud of, but instead uh, my focus is on my level of contentment in God, then my source of satisfaction is no longer located within me. It's located outside. Or to put it in another way, I've outsourced my satisfaction to the infinitely lovely, infinitely satisfying, and the infinitely unchanging God of the universe. Which is a bit like Merrick, right, in the video. When he's out of sorts with himself, he does not say to him, to, you know, he doesn't say to himself, look Merrick, you're enough. You're everything you need. You don't need anyone else. No, what does 
this young weaned child do. He does what every weaned child does. He pads around the house until he finds mum and then he snuggles into her and suddenly everything is okay. Friends, we, we can never outgrow God. We can never stop needing him. This is why the psalmist, which was most likely King David, says that we are, we are at our best when we are like weaned children. We find our contentment in God's mother-like heart, just like Merrick. So we've settled the issue of who I am, right? Uh, which is about allowing a deep contentment to replace um, pride in self. A deep contentment in God to replace pride in self. Uh, and so now the issue of who I am is settled. Then we're ready to change how I live. Verse 1 says this. I, uh, verse 1, second part of verse 1, says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted myself. And we'll just leave it there for now. I've calmed and quieted myself. Now, here we see that learning contentment, learning it, actually putting it into practice, consists of two things. There's one thing to avoid and there's one thing to embrace. Um, so the thing to avoid is concerning myself with, with great matters or things too wonderful for me. The thing to embrace is calming and quieting myself. Avoid something and embrace the other. Or, let me put it like this, uh, we live in an age uh, where we are, we are addicted to information, to knowledge. We have Facebook feeds, we have inter Instagram stories, we have clickbait, we have marketing, we have sound bites, we have online courses, we have news articles. It's all about who, who has the latest and the freshest information wins. So never before has humanity been so informed and never before has humanity been so confused. We have access to information in an unprecedented way and we've... You know, we've just experienced this over the past week with the U.S. elections. We have access to information in unprecedented ways, and yet we are so shallow. We skim and we glance and we flick and we read. Very little sinks in, um, for sure, not enough to truly transform us. And sometimes, uh, or more than sometimes, I think actually quite often we can bring this attitude to God himself. Um, he's now an item on our list of things to do. Uh, we read a verse before heading into work, if we're lucky. We glance at a friend's scripture post on Facebook, and then we hurry on our way. It's like we know more about God than ever before, but we don't know him. And so when we hear... David say, I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've quieted myself. And remember that this is the king. This is the king of Israel saying this. Um, when we read this, we realize that what he's saying is actually pretty countercultural. 
Now, this isn't saying that we should have a dumbed-down faith. Absolutely not. Scripture is clear that we should love God with our mind. Matthew chapter 22, it's clear that God tests the mind. Jeremiah chapter 22. And in fact, the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is, is 176 verses of this ode to loving God's word. And so, friends, it's clear in the Bible that the mind is important. Thinking is important. Using our intellect is important. However, we also need to listen to these warning words from uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, which says this, Now, we know that we all possess knowledge, quote-unquote, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do, do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Isn't that incredible? Whoever loves God is known by God. And so really what 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 is saying is that if our knowledge stops here and never gets to here, then we're missing the point. We need to take what we learn here and we need to apply it to here. True theology is theology that touches the heart and um, hits us on a uh, on an emotional level i don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me now now uh, we might ask what are these great matters that uh, psalm 131 might be talking about well just 8 chapters later is psalm 139 and which is also a psalm of david uh, and i think that this gives us a great insight into what these quote unquote great matters might be So let's read Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Here we go. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Those are the same words of Psalm 131. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. In Psalm 139, We are introduced to a God who is omniscient, meaning he knows everything, and who is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. All of him is everywhere at the same time. Now, now David knows this all-knowing, ever-present God enough to write this beautiful psalm about him. Okay, in this wonderful and this poignant and this beautiful way, he knows him. And so Psalm 139 does not say, well, God, I can't truly know anything about you, so I'm just going to trust you. No, Psalm 139 paints a picture of a God who is knowable. And, and from, that, from this God who is knowable, we're encouraged to trust him. This is the thrust of Psalm 139. And yet, verse 6 seems to, uh, seems to place a limit to our knowledge of God Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Have you ever had that moment where you say, God, I can't really take it anymore? That's what he's saying here. So maybe we could word it like this. What we know of God tells us that we can trust him. 
what we don't know of God shows us that we must trust him. Let me say that again. What we know of God tells us that we can trust him. And what we don't know of God shows us that we must trust him. And that's why the posture of Psalm 131 verse 1 and 2 is so important. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. It's saying that there's a lot that we can know about God and that we should know about God, but our knowledge is both limited by our brains, but also by what Scripture reveals. Uh, what we read about, about the Lord in the Bible is enough to know, but it's, it's not everything, not by a long shot. There are things that, that are not revealed in Scripture that we will never know until eternity. And so we all reach these moments when we step into the mystery of who God is, when our understanding stops, but God continues. It's like going for a cliff walk at Worm's Head in Wales, one of my favorite walks in Wales, and I stride out confidently along the peninsula with the grass underfoot, and it's fresh air, and the clouds are scudding, and I can hear the sheep, and I can see the gorse, and it's beautiful, and I, and I can see the sea in front of me, and then the grass gives way to rock, and I clamber down the rock, and I have to be a bit more careful because uh, because because it's less sure footing. I have to watch where I step, and then the rock gives way to ocean. And this is where I stop. I can look out at the ocean, but I can't go there. But even though I can't go there, my enjoyment of the ocean, my my appreciation of the ocean isn't reduced. Instead, I'm captivated by the wonder and the mystery of the ocean. And I'm grateful as well for the solid ground that I'm standing on. And that's what we see with the psalmist. He does not concern himself with great matters or things too wonderful for him. That's the ocean. But instead, he's calmed and quieted his soul. He knows he's on firm ground, that he's safe. Like Merrick, the psalmist seeks out the mother heart of God. And he rests there. Now, Notice that he says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I wonder, when's the last time you calmed and quieted yourself? You see, this is a choice that only you can make to calm and quiet yourself. When Merrick sits on Kate's lap, he doesn't need to know all the inner workings of Kate's mind and all the complexities of what makes her um, a, a fully orbed human. He doesn't ask her about her resume or her history or how her experiences through life can maybe bear on his situation right now. It's enough for Merrick to simply be there with her. What a child knows of his mum tells him that he can trust her. And whether he realizes it or not, what he does not know about his mum shows him that he must trust her. 
if uh, Merrick went through life saying, well, I don't know all there is to know about my mum, so how can I fully trust her? Well, that would make for a miserable childhood, wouldn't it? And the same is with us and with God. The life of faith, the life of a spiritually weaned child is understanding that God is both knowable and he's unfathomable. Both knowable and unfathomable. Your God is both knowable and unfathomable. And I love this idea of unfathomable. It's this picture of sailors trying to see how far below the ocean um, the sea floor is. And they measure it in, in fathoms. And one fathom is about six feet, which is about my height. And so they let out a line with lead weight on it and on the end. And they call out the depth, five fathoms, ten fathoms, fifteen fathoms, twenty fathoms. But the idea of unfathomable is that there is a place where your rope runs out. Where you can no longer measure. It's beyond your capacity to calculate. And God is unfathomable. Your measurements run out. And in that moment where you encounter mystery, where you come to the end, where your measuring rope runs out, that's where you trust. And yet on the other hand, God is knowable. And so in that, we can trust him. And I'm so glad, I'm not sure about you, but I'm so glad that I worship a God who is both unfathomable and knowable. Amen. The message of Psalm 131 is that in Christ, who we are and who we are not has a direct impact on what we do and what we do not do. We reject pride and instead embrace contentment by leaning into the mother heart of a God who is both knowable and unfathomable. This is the message of Psalm 131. And how do we do this? How do we reject pride and embrace contentment by leaning into the mother heart of a God who is both knowable and unfathomable? How do we do this? Well, through Jesus Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the unfathomable God made knowable. And so just like John 13 verse 25, we're invited to recline back onto Jesus and to lean into him and to know that we're the one that Jesus loves. And he says to us, just like he says in John 13 verse 15, or John 15, 15, he, he, he says to us, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Did you hear that? Everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. God's unfathomable love for you was made knowable on the cross. And so in this place of grace and forgiveness and uh, um, full redemption like we heard about last week, 
in this place, like the psalmist, let's learn to calm and quiet ourselves. Choose to calm and quiet yourself. Not because you've earned it. Remember, it's not about pride, but simply because God loves you. You can calm and quiet yourself because God loves you. And this is the song that leads to contentment. And when you truly grasp this, Paul's words in Philippians 4 verse 12 become yours. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's when you choose to live as a weaned child that you can, like the uh, writer of Hebrews 13 verse 5, be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? At the start of this uh, message, Kate said these words. My little two-year-old just wants to share that moment with me because he knows that I will share his joy about it. The little one very much will bring everything to me first. I'm still kind of his gateway to everything else. Okay, listen to this. I'm still kind of his gateway to everything else in the world, and he interprets his world through the way I react to him. Guys, this is how we live as spiritually weaned children. Kate nailed it here. It's about seeing God as your gateway to everything else in the world, and it's about interpreting your world through the way that God reacts to you. I love that, that God is your gateway to the world and that you interpret your world through the way that God reacts to you. And then she said this as well. If there's something that upsets him, I can tell right away in the tone of his voice and I can hear his little footsteps looking around the house for me and he comes to me immediately just for a hug sometimes and often to tell me in his own little babbles what's going on and he needs to hear that reassurance from me that, It'll be okay. Do you ever babble to God? Do you ever wander around the the house just looking for him? Do you believe that the mother-like heart of God hears the tone of your voice? Do you believe that the mother-like heart of God can hear your footsteps as you walk around the house looking for him just for a hug? To tell him in your own little babbles what's going on. Do you need to hear that, 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 that reassurance from God that in Christ, it'll be okay? Friends, do not concern yourself with great matters or things too wonderful for you. Instead, instead choose to quiet yourself. Choose to calm yourself. Choose to settle into the lap of God. Listen for his heartbeat. Smell his scent. Tell him about your day. Sing the song that leads to contentment. 
and simply be still and know that he is God. Like a weaned child, find God, settle in and settle down. But I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content.